You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by Rocket Money. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash mission log. That's rocketmoney.com slash mission log, rocketmoney.com slash mission log. This episode is also sponsored by ExpressVPN. If you want to get way more streaming shows and save money while you're at it, go to expressvpn.com slash mission log. Don't forget to use our link so you can get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash mission log, expressvpn.com slash mission log to learn more. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 512, Mortal Coil. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous podcasting by taking up arms against a sea of Star Trek and by examining, learn from them. This week, will Neelix shuffle off this mortal coil? And when he sleeps, will he, perchance, dream? John will return with trivia that will make cowards of us all right after I tell all of you how to reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on X, formerly known as Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember your comments could be used on Mission Log or engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, here's John Champion with this week's trivia. All right. Trivia for Mortal Coil. We have a script and story here credited to Brian Fuller. And of course, we know who Brian is. But who we don't know is the original freelance writer who pitched a story concept about death and the immortal alien who is essentially pranking the crew. That was by an uncredited Kathy Hankson. But the Voyager production staff were interested in taking on a big topic like this, especially Brian. And at one point, it was to be Samantha Wildman, who was the subject of our story. Now, that draft took many dark turns until it was nixed, and Brandon Braga told Brian to refocus the story. So it became about Chakotay in an experience that had him questioning his own beliefs. But that wasn't working out either. So it was Brannon and Joe Minoski who took what Brian had been hammering out and finally rebroke the story and scripted what we have here. Now, it was directed by Alan Croker, and Alan's name we just mentioned recently since he directed the first part of Year of Hell. And around the same time as this episode, he would have just come off directing Sacrifice of Angels in DS9's sixth season. And that title, well... We obviously already tipped our hat in the intro by referencing and poorly, I might add, Hamlet's famous soliloquy in which he contemplates death and whether or not that will be a restful sleep full of dreaming or simply the end. And let's meet our guest stars. Well, there aren't too many. We are dealing with essentially a bottle show here, but we do have the return of Nancy Hauer as Samantha Wildman. But Samantha is joined by someone else this time around. 
Naomi Wildman, who has grown quite a bit in the time since we first saw her on screen. This time around, she is played by Brooke Stevens. Brooke's on-screen credits are pretty limited. Other than Voyager, she made an appearance on Touched by an Angel and two episodes of ER. This is the only time on Voyager we have seen Brooke, but her voice did make a short appearance uncredited earlier this season in the episode Nemesis. The character Naomi Wildman will return, though, so stay tuned. Hey, let's all climb into a shuttle and go do something spectacularly dangerous. What could possibly go wrong? Prologue. It's all a whirl in the mess hall as Neelix frenetically tends to his crew's culinary needs, especially Harry Kim, whose exhausting duty reports require Neelix's special Firenut coffee blend. Seven, however, is not so enamored with her Talaxian-spiced supplements, to which Neelix encourages Seven to embrace more of the literal and figurative spice of life. Suddenly, Chakotay appears with an enticing offer for Neelix, a chance to use his experience with protomatter to help extract a sample from a nearby nebula. However, Neelix puts Chakotay's offer on hold for the time being, as Ensign Wildman urgently calls him to assist in putting young Naomi Wildman to bed. Neelix clarifies Naomi's existence to Seven of Nine and his role as the child's godfather. In Ensign Wildman's quarters, Neelix, holding Naomi's hand, first sweeps the room for monsters and then soothes Naomi by sharing his enchanting tales of the great forest. After putting Naomi to bed and finding his containment canister, which puzzled Seven to no end, Neelix finally accompanies Chakotay and Tom on a shuttle to the nebula. In a tragic turn of events... Neelix is killed when a wayward energy bolt penetrates the shuttle as they attempt to harness a particle of the nebula's protomatter. Act 1. Tom refuses to give in to the reality of Neelix's death, but accepts that he has no other tricks up his sleeve to save his fallen friend. To make matters worse, Tom has to abandon any further attempts to resuscitate Neelix and leave his side because Chakotay needs Tom's expert piloting skills to maneuver the shuttle through the unstable nebula and back to Voyager, hopefully in time to do what they can to save Neelix. However, by the time they get Neelix to sickbay, the doctor declares him dead and looks to Janeway as how to proceed with this devastating loss to the crew. Determined to honor Neelix, Janeway believes in honoring his Talaxian mourning traditions. Suddenly, Seven barges into sickbay, demanding to hear all that has transpired since Neelix's death, especially how long he's been deceased. Seven believes that 18 hours are still within her ability to save Neelix from necrotic and neural decay, citing a certain Borg technique acquired through the assimilation of another species who employed specially programmed nanoprobes to repair neural and tissue damage. Proposing injecting her own nanoprobes into Neelix's body, Seven believes that she can revive him as the Borg would to any other biological drone. The doctor is beside himself with objections, but Janeway, after weighing the implications of such a procedure, orders Seven to proceed. And after making the necessary adjustments for her nanoprobes to repair Talaxian physiology, the nanoprobes are administered and Neelix is resurrected, awakening in sickbay with no memory of his death but feeling deep down inside that something is not quite as it should be. Act 2 Neelix grapples with the disbelief of his technological reincarnation 
as Borg nanoprobes course through his veins, continuing to repair his damaged tissue and neural pathways. After being medically cleared to return to his quarters, Neelix, accompanied by Captain Janeway, wants to help investigate his mission's failure and how he was killed. Also, Neelix remains resolute about organizing the Talaxian Festival of Prixen. Janeway, sensing his determination, relents and allows him to continue the preparations. However, when Neelix is finally alone in his quarters, his once quirky and energetic facade disappears as he kneels before the tree statuette from the Great Forest. Neelix calls out to the memory of his sister Elixia, wondering and asking her why she wasn't there to greet him as he has always believed she would. Elsewhere on the ship, Tuvok and Seven engage in a philosophical discussion on mortality. Seven views death as her Borg training dictates, as a natural biological function, but acknowledges her perpetual existence to the memories retained from the Borg collective. Tuvok retorts that this supposed immortality must be a relief, but Seven is unsure of his true meaning. Later in engineering, Chakotay, Tom, and Bellana are deep in their investigation regarding the protomatter mission failure that claimed Neelix's life. Chakotay believes he will find answers in his highly detailed holodeck simulation. Neelix ventures to the holodeck to help with Chakotay's investigation, but upon doing so, he comes face to face with a moment of his death. Pausing the program, Neelix confides in Chakotay about the absence of an afterlife, the great forest he held dear. A sympathetic Chakotay suggests he may have been pulled back too swiftly to experience it. But in the 18-hour span of his death, Neelix wasn't visited by any of his loved ones, as his belief promised, and begins to question the very foundation of his beliefs, and if he has been betrayed by the very hope those beliefs inspired. Act 3. The Talaxian celebration of Prixen is in full effect in Neelix's mess hall, as members of the crew, dressed in their finest off-duty attire, Enjoy a brief respite to not only celebrate the meaning of Prixen, but Neelix's second lease on life. At Neelix's behest, Tuvok addresses the congregation with a somewhat truncated Talaxian salutation. Tom follows this up with a toast to Neelix, who seems outwardly fine, putting on a brave face so that everyone can enjoy the festivities. Chakotay sidles up to him, sensing that Neelix may need a friendly ear and perhaps even some counseling after seeing how adversely the holodeck simulation affected him. In another corner of the mess hall, Janeway encourages Seven to improve her odds of enjoying herself at this party by doing what humans do, jump into a late conversation. However, after inserting herself as Seven is wont to do, she inadvertently drives away Sam Wildman, who was discussing Naomi's growth spurts with the doctor. Sam makes her way to the back of Neelix's galley and finds him somewhat off-put, but not sure why. She mentions that Naomi needs his help falling asleep again, and Neelix obliges, citing duty calling him to slip away from his own party. However, once he's finished with his traditional sweep for monsters in Naomi's quarters, Neelix can't help but slip into a moment of despair when Naomi asks him to tell her his traditional bedtime story about the joy, love, and wonder of those who look over him from the great forest. Afterwards, when Neelix is cleaning up after the party, Seven interrupts him to scan his vital signs and check his progress, as she states she was ordered to do. But in a fit of despair, Neelix slaps the tricorder from her hands and barks at her that he didn't ask to be saved and brought back to life, if he can any longer call this existence life. However, during his fit of rage, his nanoprobes begin to fail, and Seven quickly escorts him to sickbay. Act 4 
The doctor's prognosis is grim. Neelix's body is rejecting the nanoprobes, and the doctor believes that Neelix may live with this condition, that is to require routine nanoprobe infusions for the rest of his life. However, Neelix is driven by a need to know more, and takes Chakotay up on his offer to help him understand what is happening to his faith and spirituality through engaging in a vision quest. Chakotay instructs Neelix to prepare his medicine bundle, meaning he should gather several very personal objects that will ground him on his journey no matter where his visions may take him. Later in Neelix's quarters, all the preparations have been made and the medicine bundle is ready, complete with beads belonging to his sister Elixia, a flower from Kess's garden, and the statue of the Talaxian guiding tree of the afterlife. As Chakotay implores his spirit guide Akuchimoya to begin the quest, Neelix suddenly finds himself in a somewhat unsettling version of the mess hall. All of his friends and fellow crewmen, but most importantly, he catches a glimpse of his long-lost sister in the distance with Janeway. However, his so-called friends in this vision are nothing more than specters who he has to fight through to find Elixia standing next to the guiding tree in the Great Forest. And when he confronts her about why she wasn't waiting for him after he died, she tells him that everything he has placed his faith in, his hope, and his belief in is all a lie. She tells him that he needs to accept what happened, and, according to her, in the haunting and ghastly representations of his friends, there is only one thing left to do. Act 5 In Astrometrics, Neelix approaches Seven with heartfelt sincerity, apologizing for his earlier behavior towards her and forgiving her for doing what she believed was right, saving his life. Before leaving, Neelix offers her a few words of advice, that she is now an important part of the crew and that she will always be more than Borg. She is Seven, plain and simple. However, Seven senses there is a strangeness about his tone and his manner. Later in the mess hall, Chakotay confronts Neelix, wondering why he missed their meeting to further discuss and interpret the messages seen during his vision quest. Neelix claims that not only has he been too busy, but that he's made peace with his visions, something Chakotay warns Neelix not to dismiss too quickly, that it takes time for the messages to fully take shape. Neelix relents to meeting with Chakotay sometime later. And with that, Neelix finishes straightening up the mess hall, shuts off the lights, and leaves. In the privacy of his quarters, Neelix records a very personal log, containing what appears to be a very final goodbye to Voyager and coded for a time-release delivery to Captain Janeway in one hour. Shortly after, Neelix attempts an illegal transport, which is blocked by Harry. Chakotay rushes to the transporter room and confronts a very distraught Neelix, who admits that he's trying to return to the nebula where he died. Neelix believes that this is his only way out to find any kind of peace, but Chakotay pleads with Neelix to reinterpret his vision quest differently. But Neelix doesn't see any way out until Samantha Wildman appears. Unaware of what Neelix is suffering, all Samantha asks of Neelix is to do the one thing that only he can do, put his goddaughter Naomi to sleep. And that realization was enough for Neelix to stand down and end his torment for now. Upon returning to Samantha's quarters, Neelix fulfills his duty to Naomi and finds new purpose in her dreams of the Great Forest, where she now escapes to find her comfort and solace, knowing that those in the tree are watching over her. The End Well done, Norman. Uh, Heavy stuff, and I look forward to uh, the conversation that comes up today. But as we do, got to have a little fun with it first. And I'm just going to say, like, if I was hanging out in the mess hall... 
on the surface of it, uh, anything called a fire nut blend sounds dangerous and something I probably do not want to drink or get anywhere near my body. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love how coffee is like this universal element that ties not only like the fantasy world building of the show together, yeah, but yeah. the fantasy and our reality together because – Coffee is just important today as it will be 300 years from now. <laughs> I, you know, that's such a good point because like uh, Picard had his tea and in DS9 you had Rakugino, which you, you can kind of – you make the leap. You automatically connect it. But I think in right. this, you don't need another alien name for something. This is coffee. Like we all, we all get it. We all love coffee. I guess we need it. Fire nut is alien enough. <laughs> This fire nut is going to crack me up yeah, every time. Fire <laughs> that sounds like a Beavis and Butthead thing. And by the way, uh, Neelix is the onboard expert in protomatter, which is pretty amazing. I mean, I'm thinking back to, oh, I don't know, a, a rambunctious group of scientists on regular one dealing with protomatter mm -hmm. and how that was a challenge that they face. And here's Neelix is like, oh, yeah, I know about the stuff. I've dealt with that. Yeah, let me get a Dixie cup and I'll go scoop <laughs> yeah, some I'll out. Yeah, I'll go get it right? for you. <laughs> I know this is obviously Neelix's story, but you would think if this was real that, I don't know, Chakotay would go to the one species on his ship that may have dealt with protomatter before and the harnessing of it. And, and has like a vast seven? scientific knowledge of thousands <laughs> of species. Yeah. Yeah, just one of those things. May help out a little yeah. bit. And speaking of Seven, great scene. She has so many good scenes in this uh, and a great mm -hmm. moment of dealing with something as foreign as food that has flavor but then i was just sort of like you know whiplash of somebody mentioned naomi wildman and i was like what and i kept yeah. thinking where has she been all this time during like year of hell and other stuff and getting so big which thank goodness they referenced that but yeah we have very smart people you know in our audience and especially in our discord and uh, sam this is coming directly at you because I know that because there is a line of dialogue that the doctor and and, and uh, Samantha Wildman were talking about, like how Naomi has grown like so many inches like per year. Yeah. So do the math, Sam, <laughs> and get back to he, us. He will. You will. Right. I thought that Seven's ambush uh, in, in Neelix's back galley was funny, but is that where she eats? I mean, that's not where she eats, right? I Is she just maybe, laying in wait for him to ambush him? Uh, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Maybe <laughs> that's how it works. Yeah. yeah. I really like the, the bit of foreshadowing they get with uh, Neelix indulging in Naomi's imagination, but also setting up his own beliefs for us to understand. So a nice efficiency sure. of the writing there. And I, I love mm -hmm. the little reveal here that the Kazon they're just not worth it to assimilate. <laughs> That's so savage. Yeah. The takedown is so savage, right? Do you think? Have we? Do we know if the if the Borg have encountered the pack led species yet? That would be hilarious. Because uh, imagine if they got assimilated and the Kazon didn't. What does that say? I know. I know. Right. right? Paging Mike McMahon. Paging Mike mm -hmm. McMahon. <laughs> um, I, I think Tom Paris has got a point. They should all have pizza night once a week at least. I think that is at least fair. Oh, and it was so funny. Mm -hmm. Like, Neelix was like, oh, well, you know, it'll take so much time to, like, separate the curds and the whey. And Tom's like, just replicate the cheese. Do it. Replicate the cheese. Come on. <laughs> like, come on, right? Yeah. But also, we saw all of those wonderful, quote unquote, alien fruits and vegetables in Neelix's mm -hmm. galley all strung up and drying out and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. You would think that they would make interesting pizza with 
alien food. Yeah. You know? Yeah. As opposed to pepperoni. They, uh, as much as I love pepperoni. No, I mean, they, right? they get back to Earth and like have a whole new take on California Pete's Kitchen because they'd have all this new stuff. Love, love, love the special effects of the nebula. I thought they yep. looked really nice and very impressive how that blast of energy just goes right through the windshield, directly killing Neelix and not even grazing Chakotay or Tom. It was like, oh, oh this yeah. is going through the window and man down. Yep. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I guess now that we've cured death, uh, is Seven going to use this technology on any other member of the crew from now on? Uh, you know, it's a pretty interesting Frankenstein proposition here, but she can do this at least 18 hours out. Yeah, what's that phrase? Put a pin in this, mm, John? Okay, okay. Because I, I do... We'll we'll talk about this in discussion, but we haven't, you know, it's it's not new to like science fiction or fantasy tropes. I mean, we saw that obviously in Frankenstein, as you referenced. There's yeah. a great movie called Flatliners from like the mm-hmm. 1990s mm-hmm. about or late 80s. Um, and that was a Joel Schumacher film. And they're talking about the repercussions of cheating death. Yeah. That kind of thing. However, now I have Neelix permanently trapped in my mind's eye performing, putting on the wits. He's <laughs> got the top hat, the big boots. Yep. <laughs> <Put on it! laughs> yeah. Seven You're is welcome. wonderful <laughs> in all of that sequence, her efficiency and her dispassion and her interactions with the doctor kind of one-upping him. But again, but, you know, dispassionately so. Um, mm-hmm. And then that final look that she gives when she is successful in reviving Neelix. I mean, wow. Uh, just perfection. She was kind of channeling like OG doctors like season one with that smugness. Yeah. Even yeah, though she's yeah, bored yeah. and she doesn't understand smugness, she's still smug. Exactly. Exactly. But herein lies some of the problems that I have with depending on her infinite knowledge to be able to do these things. Yeah. Again, it's, it's one of those situations where if you don't have somebody who's like basically the Swiss knife deus ex machina that you need to get through certain narratives then what do your characters do? Right. If she wasn't on board, could the doctor have done this? Right, right. So I know that it's very, you know, cart before the horse type of argument. But at the same time, though, what can't she do yeah. that she hasn't done yet? And it's getting, it's trending a little bit more towards, okay, Data locking out the ship mm-hmm. at whim, you know? Yeah. So because he can mimic voices, he knows all the passwords, he can basically move controls at the speed of thought. Mm-hmm. It's very dangerous. It's a very slippery slope here. Agreed. Agreed. His little bit of negotiation, you know, perhaps he was in a coma and then just seven, no, you were dead. <laughs> like, I, I got like very few people can deliver a line quite like that. And uh, she nailed it. How do you set a world record in the Delta Quadrant and which world would that be? Ooh, that's a good question. You got a lot to choose from at you this know? point. Yeah. Just saying, you know. I also wondered why Neelix would need to be injected daily with nanoprobes. Because at this point in the show, that's before we knew that his uh, skin would, or some of his cells would still die off. I thought the nanoprobes would replicate because I thought that's a thing that they do, but I guess not. Maybe these are special. And then. Didn't they do that with 8472? They were self replicating nanoprobes. I thought they were. I thought that was the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But these are different. Nice little moment with, you know, Janeway reminding Neelix that he just returned from the dead. And I'm thinking maybe should she have connected him with Harry Kim because he's been dead too. (laughs) I mean, they had a whole conversation about it and they just seemed to forget Janeway couldn't say, ooh, you know, you might want to talk to this other guy on the crew. Who's also not just experienced, he's died, Mm -hmm. but he's also experienced 
someone else's version of afterlife. Mm-hmm. And I'll get to that mm-hmm. in, in conversation and in the discussion points. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think this would have been a great opportunity to finally kind of um, like shove off the, the trope of Harry's awkwardness towards seven yeah. and finally write a good scene for the two of them together yes. and say, from my experience, this is what you can learn from. Oh boy. That you know? would have been great. Right. Yeah. Oh, that would have been nice. Yeah. But really good conversation we get between Tuvok and seven because she is clearly not relieved that the memories that she has are immortal in Borg technology. I, I, it's right. one of those moments, and Vulcans have this too, where you really get to see the subtext underneath mm-hmm. the dialogue, and they're both wonderful at exposing that. Also, by the way, Seven, somebody could pull the plug on Borg technology. Nothing is forever. Now, I love that Tuvok kind of logicked her into trying to understand that because yeah. I love uh, Jerry's reaction. It's just, it's very nuanced and she's not really, she doesn't believe mm-hmm. like her conviction yeah. you know, with her answer. Yeah. But also what I think is unique about seven, and maybe this is what she may have been thinking about. She became this particular person after she separated from the collective and she's no longer, you know, connected to the Borg cloud. So whatever happens to her now is unique and can be lost. Yeah. You know, so there's only version, you know, 1.0 in the Borg cloud. This Mm -hmm. is 7.2.0. So that's gone when it's gone. Yeah. I couldn't even imagine what Neelix was going through, staring at the moment of his own death, recreated in perfect detail. Yeah. I don't even know, like, what that would do psychologically to a person. I mean, we have dreams about that, but that was, like, right there. And that's the point where I love when he, when when they made this specific point, like, that's when all of his faith comes to bear at that moment. He sees it. Like he's literally living his out of body experience in real time. Yeah. There, there should be some sort of provision to not do that. <laughs> you know, yeah, is like, yeah, you might not want to be around for this. It's pretty exacting in its detail. You might want to sit this one out. Yeah. Yeah. And a good conversation that they're having. And I, I like that we established this bit of relationship here. And Neelix gets to have this conversation with Chicote and with Neelix saying, well, it's all just a myth, you know, but myths are important. And who better to expose that than Chicote? So they, I, I think this is a nice setup for, for what we're about to get in the episode. Myth, <laughs> myth, myth. <laughs> um, yes. There was a funny bit with the family list that uh, Tuvok is reading. Uh, nicely oh, done. Yeah. 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 And I also love the casual attire, yes. the off-duty attire in this. You're good thought it was, at this. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, it, it didn't start so well in the earlier seasons, but now yeah. – that's it. There's some sharp looking couture yeah, happening here. Better yeah. believe it. And then yep. uh, when the computer is asked to play some music, it, it's like a weird light jazz version of something Star Trek y. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I kept going back and re listening. Like, what is, are they referencing other Trek? But it's pretty jazzy. <laughs> so I, I think that I, I can categorize it as Ren Fair Synth. Nice. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Which makes sense, like in kind of like in the. Um, the parlance of like Star Trek, because even like the future primitive societies are like Ren Faire refugees, totally but with future a future you know slant on the fashion. Yeah, yeah. so it kind of fits. It's like you know um, where these writers are hanging out, uh, you know, on oh, their yeah. weekends totally. off. Yeah, 
Uh, you know, I love Alan Croker's use of POV mm-hmm. uh, in, in Neelix's reaction to the toast. It just it gives you that fish-eye lens feeling of that kind of mental instability that yeah. Neelix is kind of challenged with right now. He doesn't know exactly – like everything's just kind of muffled and muddled, you know, and off balance. And I thought that was really well done. Yes. Again, you know, we keep pointing out how good Seven is here and uh, the very thought of her having fun. No. <laughs> It's just perfect, perfect, perfect. And you need bits of comedy like that that aren't hitting you over the head. You need mm-hmm. those in an episode that's this heavy. So, yeah. And those are well sprinkled throughout. I know that wasn't played for comedy, mm-hmm. but when, when Sam Wildman goes back to see Neelix about Naomi mm-hmm. and Neelix has a tray of hors d'oeuvres, he flips that tray. Like Johnny flips that tray so fast <laughs> yeah. to show how nervous and how anxious he is. Yes. Yeah. It's a dramatic scene, yeah. but his timing is so good. Spot they on. act so well together. Yeah. And of course, the the return of Akuna, Akuna Matata, yeah. everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and to quote our very uh, own Earl Green and Akuchimoya, y'all. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm just going to come out and uh, editorialize here a little bit that uh, Neelix's vision quest is a pretty good argument that the whole Akuna spirit journey is literally just whatever is already in your head. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I, and, and look, I, it, I, I'm not saying that there is not a utility to that because I think there mm-hmm. is. But it, it, it's like, no, no, no. You, you have all the stuff there. You have all your gear and you have a, a focal point and that's fine. And then you hook up the machine. But basically, this is all the stuff that's already rattling around. I'm not convinced that there's something uh, from outside coming in and influencing you. But uh, this may be a different argument for a different episode. Do we even know, did we have a replicator pattern for the medicine bundle assigned to the replicator? There must be. Right? There We've talked about that be. before. Yeah. You know, because this is the first time that Chakotay needed a new bundle. Yeah. I know that I've been uh, I've been criticized about being a little heavy on Voyager, but I will say this. When I think that Voyager is at its best, I will give all the praise Mm -hmm. to it. And there's a scene in this episode where it is just so layered and profound. And it's in the mess hall when Seven's scanning Neelix about his nanoprobes. And Seven says, you need the nanoprobes to live. Mm -hmm. And Neelix says, live? Oh, is that what I'm doing right now? Living? Because I'm beginning to wonder. And Seven says, by most definitions, you are alive. And Neelix says, well, part of me isn't alive. And Seven says, which part are you referring to? <laughs> Just like the two, the two like different tracks yes. that their mentalities are on. Yes. And the way that they play those lines is perfection. It's just sheer perfection. Yeah. yeah. In that, what is it? One, two, three. Yeah. Five lines. Mm-hmm. Look how much we have revealed uh, that is so true to their characters and so true mm-hmm. to the moment. Uh, I love and it. And they're talking over each other and not really understanding yeah. what each other is doing or coming, where they're coming from. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. Continuing on from many great Neelix interactions, poor Neelix, he can't even apologize to Seven. That's just not going very well. And he can't lie very well to Chakotay. This is really, it, it's so touching and sweet how out of step and how uncomfortable he gets to this Mm -hmm. very tragic point in his life and trying so hard and cannot connect uh, with these people. I thought that this buildup in the final act is incredibly well done. Well, we're really seeing, you know, Ethan, quote unquote, Johnny Phillips, Mm -hmm. right? You know, just on full display here with all of his talent. Yeah. There's in the scene that you're talking about, there's just this fine line 
that he's acting, you know, and, and the choices that he's making as an actor, as a performer, to make sure that he's just like one degree off of falling one way or the other yes. and trying to maintain this emotional in, in instability that's happening. Yeah, yeah, agreed. One more time here, uh, Chakotay saying to Neelix about the vision quest, I'm sure those are powerful images, but there are many ways to interpret them. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what good are the images <laughs> on a vision quest if anyone can interpret them in any number of ways? <laughs> Again, it's the stuff in Neelix's mind to begin with. Uh, not, yeah. not saying this is totally without utility, but I think you right. also need a psychologist in there as well. Um, yeah. Really nice uh, callback in this episode. Neelix says, 11 years ago, I saw my world in ruins. Uh, call back to the Talaxians being at war and remember Neelix sitting out that war and another layer of tragedy and um, uh, compromise in his character. Uh, very powerful stuff. See the episode Jatrell, which uh, we, we reviewed and quite liked uh, quite a bit. Yeah, and you could actually, pa- I mean, if you wanted to do this as like a, you know, a, a marketer, you could package Jatrell and this episode. Yes. Maybe with like one or two yeah. and do like a really wonderful Neelix arc. I agree. I absolutely agree. And then uh, as we approach the very end here, Chakotay can't help it but to uh, throw a little shade at our resident Borg again. He's talking about Seven and then he says to Neelix, even our Borg understands how important you are. <laughs> like. Wow, Chicote, setting that bar pretty low, aren't you? Someone has to say it. The plan Neelix has for beaming himself off the ship is nebulous at best. We'll get right back to Mortal Coil after a word from this week's sponsors. Hey, I think that, uh, well, no matter what time of year, but uh, maybe especially this time of year, we all think about maybe saving money, maybe cutting back on expenses a little bit. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that my rent just went up and I'm like, oh, hey, what can I cut out <laughs> to make a little bit of a dent in that? For example, I mean, if you look at the amount of money that you spend on streaming services every month, you know, add them up, Disney, Netflix, Amazon Prime, Paramount, et cetera, you name it. You probably spend a lot on those places, but what if I told you that since starting to use ExpressVPN, uh, you can probably cut back on some of those streaming services and then save a bit more money every month? Uh, hmm. let, let Norman explain, shall you? Okay, so see, so all of these streaming services like Netflix, like you mentioned, John, they actually have thousands of more shows than you think. I mean, you think you can scroll through it all. You're not even like hitting the tip of the iceberg. You just don't see them all because they give you different shows depending on your country, right? Not depending on the service, depending on your country. So what you see on Netflix, say domestically here where we are, is completely different to what say someone says uh, sees in Italy or South Korea or elsewhere, because remember it's dependent on the country. Yeah. Or, or North Korea uh, for sure. I think a very different lineup there. Yeah. There's also uh, that. <laughs> but uh, but using the ExpressVPN app, you can change your online location. ExpressVPN has over 90 countries to choose from. So every time I run out of stuff to watch, well, I just switch to another country and then boom, unlock all these new shows. 
So right now, uh, I've actually been doing my old favorite, which is uh, logging back into the uh, the BBC app because mm-hmm. it's very nice to be able to switch my location to Docklands or to London and say like, oh, hey, here's where I am. I'm going to switch over to BBC and uh, catch some of the end of the year festivities that we're showing over there. Literally one button to change the country code, refresh the page. And there they are. And then what you don't have to do is pay a whole lot of extra money for the streaming services that you're not watching. So also juggling all the apps is kind of very confusing. You know, you mm-hmm. leave your app open and turns your phone battery, drains your tablet battery, what have you. Mm-hmm. What you were saying on top of that, you know, I can even use ExpressVPN to get discounts because we all like oh, to save money, especially now, right? We do. And we were just talking about that. Some services yeah. cost less in other countries. For example, if you buy Netflix from, say, Argentina, Mm. it costs less than elsewhere. So that's money savings, and that's what we like. And at less than $7 a month, ExpressVPN pays for itself and so much more. So it's kind of a no-brainer. If you want to get way more shows and save money all at the same time, go to expressvpn.com slash mission log, and don't forget to use our link so you can get three extra months free that's expressvpn.com slash mission log expressvpn.com slash mission log to learn more you know norman it's uh, so coincidental that we're just talking about saving money <laughs> because mm-hmm. maybe you and i and other people in our audience feel like money you open up your wallet and just <laughs> just money goes flying out and you you oh, have yeah. no control over it whatsoever and it's like wait how did i just spend that when i just spent that it doesn't make any sense and maybe you have no idea where it's going well speak of the devil how about subscriptions because mm-hmm. think about it. Okay, we, we talked about subscription services, streaming services, right? Let, let's add on some others like fitness apps, delivery services, parenting apps, so many of them. It is endless. And we just sign up for stuff willy-nilly. And before you know it, you're getting hit with fee after fee after fee. I'm guilty of this. So how about doing what I did? And you log into Rocket Money to help find what subscriptions you're actually spending money on it is very eye-opening <laughs> because mm-hmm. then what you get to do is you get to cancel the ones that you don't want anymore, especially ones you just forgot about and they're sucking money out of your account. Now, if I ask you, Norman, or if I asked anyone in our audience, hey, how much are you spending on subscriptions? And by the way, how many subscriptions do you have? Do you think you'd be able to sit down and just like list them out for me? Do you think you'd be able to tell me what they are and how much they cost? Because I guarantee you that you couldn't. And when you compared it to the real number, you'd probably be shocked, shocked, I say, at what the actual number is. Well, here's kind of like a realistic scenario that I think a lot of us have maybe gone through during the course of the holidays. You're visiting relatives or friends. You want to watch something. They don't have a certain subscription. You already have it at home. And then you have another email address and then you can get another subscription. Now you have a subscription to the same service that you're paying redundancies on. Mm -hmm. This is why you need Rocket Money because Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels these unwanted subscriptions. It helps you monitor your spending and it helps you lower your bills. Sometimes we can't step away from the moment we can't step away from the dust settling after Mm -hmm. all of the aftermath of spending Mm -hmm. has happened we need help we all need something to look out for us and who doesn't want to save money i can see all of my subscriptions in one place at rocket money if i see something i don't want i can cancel it with a tap that's what apps do 
or at least the ones that help you save money. <laughs> I never have to get on the phone with customer service, which is always nice because sometimes it's just uh, your infinite loop yeah, of waiting for yeah. customer service. Rocket Money will even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. And that's right. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average, average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled subscriptions. I mean, look, I, I would take even lower than that average because uh, that is a pretty hefty savings every year. 720 That's a lot of money. That is a so lot of money, yeah. Don't waste that money. Stop wasting your money on things you don't use. Save you know, 720 bucks, you know, a year on average. Cancel those unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash mission log. That's rocketmoney.com slash mission log. Rocketmoney.com slash mission log. All right. An episode like this, like Mortal Coil, we, we come across these every now and then where you think, okay, if I start to talk about one topic, well, that's the entire show right there, you know, or one other topic, that could be the entire show. And uh, there's, there's no way that we can be exhaustive about this. And there's a handful of points I wanted to bring up and, and that I just want to share something personal uh, as we get toward the end of this conversation. But um, there were a few little things that I thought were like uh, food for thought or or, or just kind of like a, a fun little idea for our audience to kick around, right? So at mm -hmm. the beginning of the episode, uh, Neelix has his accident. And remember, he's confronting Seven about what actually happened. Like, well, well maybe I wasn't dead. Maybe, maybe I was unconscious. Maybe I was in a coma. Maybe, you know, and she has that great, you know, shoots that line back up. No, you were dead. Neelix was dead, but if we're playing that semantic game, mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and why not? Death is, by definition, a state from which one does not recover. So, so Neelix was, what, he was mostly dead? He, he was on his way to death without intervention. Uh, he was almost past the point of no return. I, I get it. For all intents, he was dead without the without the extraordinary intervention of Seven's Borg technology. There was nothing else to do, and he was completely unresponsive. But mm -hmm. clearly, in the stages of death, in the process that is death, the Borg just are able to draw that demarcation line a bit later, because otherwise, any Borg would have been able to come along with any given species and say like, oh, no, 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 the, this one we can actually revive after 18 hours, this one we can revive after 72 hours, whatever the case may be, as opposed to here on Earth in human conditions with, you know, human doctors of the 21st mm -hmm. century you can say like, oh, okay, well, you know, without oxygen, we know that we'll hit brain death at this certain stage. But up until that point, we may be able to revive somebody. So, you know, there are many, many lines of demarcation along there, uh, along the spectrum, as it were. Right. Well, the thing is, is that this exposes like a truism about science is that you only don't know what you don't know. Right. Right. So like right, once right, things right. start to like evolve, then scientifically you'll be able to, you know, break Arthur C. Clarke's third law of any. <laughs> yeah. In any advanced civilizations, technology would be indistinguishable from magic, you know, to yeah. another civilization that doesn't understand that. So, yeah. I, I think that with the Borg, and again, this is that dangerous precedent that's being set with Seven, 
if there's something that either the, the most advanced scientific starship or one of them of Starfleet can't handle, that means that somewhere along the line of Borg collective thought that they could handle can be applied. Therefore, mm-hmm. what is there for Seven to not be able to successfully overcome? Because yeah. she can. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, and it also sets the other precedent of will this just be a technique that is limited to bridge officers or important characters? You know, why not be able to harness all those nanoprobes to basically save anyone who dies in the service of getting Voyager back home? You could literally get Voyager back home on that generational ship if you have the nanoprobes uh, programmed in a way that keeps them alive. Yeah, or then presumably you get back to Earth and it's like, hey, guess what? Along the way, we found this great Borg technology. Now, wait, we know that Borg are scary, but we've been able to use this Borg technology to literally bring people back from the dead. So uh, how how do we then incorporate that into Starfleet medical knowledge? And and by the way, speaking of Seven's extraordinary abilities and her extraordinary knowledge, it's not important, I realize, but it just kind of popped into my head. How does she walk around with that? Because mostly at this point, Seven of Nine is the biology that was Annika Hansen. There is a lot of Borg technology in her, but remember the doctor said that he'd remove something like 80% of it if you go back to Scorpion Part 2. So it seems like the the knowledge of the Borg are actually part of this computer collective. They're part of this network collective of all of those drones hooked up and all of the various systems that integrate those. If you just have an individual Borg, is it because she remembers all of those things? Because that is an extraordinary amount of brain power, just you know, the, the biological meat bag between your ears, absorbing all of that. Or is there some technological answer to that? It's like, well, we got rid of 80% of the Borg tech, but we left behind the one piece of Borg tech that remembers all the knowledge of the universe. Wouldn't the nanoprobes be constantly making sure that her brain functions at the highest capacity when it was first connected to the collective? Sure. I mean, you can explain it away that way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I understand but, what you're saying, but in universe, that's how the writers would explain that away? I guess so. But it, it's like, uh, do those nanites still need access to the uh, you know the networked systems that make up the Borg? Or do they just yeah. all walk around with all of that knowledge all the time? Yeah. Because if she's severed from the collective, then eh, it might be a different thing. Severed if yeah. nine. I said that before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I wanted to go back to the president thing because I think that mm-hmm. it's something that, you know, just in terms of, again, like inserting ourselves into the logic of the world building. So if Seven retained, as you say, mm-hmm. uh, the assimilated resuscitation technique from species 149, sadly mm-hmm. it's not 147, but mm-hmm. hey, what can oh, you do? so close. Yeah. To reanimate drones from up to 73 hours after death and then using Neelix, mm-hmm. emotional consequences notwithstanding. What's stopping this procedure from being turned into standard operating procedure for Starfleet when they get back home, as we said? Mm -hmm. But then again, where does morality come into play? Mm -hmm. Where does religious belief come into play? When does Mm -hmm. DNR come into play? Because Mm -hmm. that's essentially what Neelix is upset about. You had no right to do this to me. It wasn't your choice to make. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted – he goes, when I die, I am supposed to go into the afterlife to meet my family underneath the guardian tree. Yeah. That's my destiny. You had yeah. no right to pull me away from that. And you did. 
because of what reason? Science, obligation, duty, honor. But right. that has nothing to do with me. Right. Right. So she chose that for him. She did. And yeah, asking a question about a DNR or something like that, it kind of becomes this weird sliding scale, like where from our perspective, we can only see it as what humans now are reasonably expected to survive or not survive. And you say, okay, well, that person is beyond that point. But if you introduce this other technology into it and say, okay, well, uh, the DNR or the individual's wishes still hold. However, here's this new thing that says, oh, no, 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 we, we can keep you going for longer. And uh, without that patient's consent, what good is that? Is that ethical, what she chooses to do? It is interesting to me that, that Janeway is the only one who considers that ethical implication for just a moment. Mm-hmm. But it really is just a moment. And yeah. it was one of those situations, well, Captain, you have to make a decision now. Okay, let me think about it. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, yeah. that was pretty much all that we got. It, right. It's interesting that you say that because one of these kind of weird esoteric ideas that uh, was awakened in me in watching this one again was I have always been intrigued that for, you know, quite a while now, uh, there are people who chase down immortality through like cryogenics or some other uh, method of life extension. And uh, yes, the, the, the current trend right now is these, you know, billionaires who are doing all kinds of extreme medical and fitness practices while they are alive to try to keep their bodies in as optimal shape as they can. It's all very interesting. It is a rich person's game. It is an obsessed person's game. But there are people before this stage who have done cryogenesis. What was the big company? Alcor for a while. And of course, there are all kinds of tragic stories you hear about that as well and all kinds Mm -hmm. of reasons scientists say like no no no, this probably can't happen but take somebody who has chosen to go through this process and let's say they're frozen for a thousand years or two thousand or five thousand years and let's say that their gamble pays off and they or some part of them are revived in that time where have they been for five thousand years because Neelix was dead for 18 hours and there was nothing. There was nothing for him. So align that with whatever uh, faith tradition you have. If that body is frozen with all biological functions ceased for 5,000 years, are they dead? Are they not dead? Are they still in the for all intents uh, unrevivable state just this side of death that kind of made me, you know, it, it, it sort of raised these questions in me that Neelix has. I, I wondered like, okay, so for 5,000 years, is, is your soul visiting the afterlife in Neelix's case, in the great forest, you know, and then 5,000 years later, some scientists, they're busy reviving your frozen brain and you say, oh, sorry, I got to go because I'm due back in my meat brain uh, right. now. So too bad, guys. Well, I mean, it goes all the way back to, like, let's go to relics, right, in, in the next generation. Like, Scotty was mm, put in mm-hmm. a pattern buffer for, what, 20-something-odd years. Yeah. Like, he is not a biological being, as you say, meatbag. His brain mm-hmm. doesn't exist. His body doesn't exist. He's part of, basically, an al- a degrading algorithm over time mm-hmm. where there was enough of his pattern that was sustained to be able to reproduce, like, who he was when he went to the, went to the pat- pattern buffer to survive the Dyson Sphere crash. Yeah. So... When he is revived, he is a physical being. When he's in the pattern buffer, he is basically data. 
Yeah. Not data, the Android data, as in terms of ones and zeros. <laughs> data with so little D, yeah. what happens? Like, you know, we've always talked about this with the transporter. When you are broken down into transporter data, you are information. You, your body yeah. has been destroyed. Yeah. So yeah. Has, has your soul been destroyed as well? Right. If, in fact, you believe in that? So yeah. that's it's kind of like going all the way back to what Ian Malcolm said in Jurassic Park. He said, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could... They didn't stop to think if they should. Yeah. Because yeah. what Seven did to Neelix, and I know this is a sticking point, you know, mm. at least it is for me, is that she took it upon herself to choose his destiny. Yeah. You know, his fate, you know, his yeah. mortality, you know, yeah. and his afterlife. She chose that because she felt like he is a vital, essential, integral part of making the ship function. Yeah. But yeah. that's not his destiny. His destiny is not to make the ship function. His destiny is to reach the afterlife of the tree. So when you take that away from somebody, like all of the choice from him in this episode was removed from him. But, you know? but if that choice is, hey, if he had been struck with something where the EMH, the doctor, could have revived him after 45 minutes, mm -hmm. is that still taking away his future in the afterlife in the great forest i mean the, now we're just talking about a matter of time and technology it really depends on what he wants yeah. yeah and i'm not sure if he knows what he wants you know like again like one minute death 18 hours death if you have the technology to bridge that time isn't the factor anymore yeah it's you know it's the morality it's the, the decision behind that well, but the point here is what what are we actually taking away from Neelix? Because I think the story is very clear that there is not the great forest waiting for him or for anybody else at the end of this uh, episode. And uh, look, if if we wanted our conversation today to last four hours, mm -hmm. then I think we could also debate the the power and the importance of myth. And exactly how ethical it is to tell each other stories about the great forest or whatever version of afterlife you want to talk about, if that's a, a net positive or a net negative thing. You know, see also the Ricky Gervais movie, The Invention of Lying, which mm -hmm. we have referenced on Mission Log before. Uh, you know, we, we kind of play fast and loose and, and make a joke of that when we talk about, you know, what, what sort of harmless myths do we tell each other. But this is a profoundly personal and profoundly human one that actually shapes a lot of people's concept of their own lives and their, their own identity. It's not something like the tooth fairy. The, yeah. This is on or a Santa totally Claus or scale. Yeah. Or bunny or things yeah. Like that. Yeah. yeah. This is on a totally different scale. I know that we have a lot to get to. I want to give you yeah. the space to be able to discuss what you want to discuss. I know that we've, we had this on offline discussion about how, profound this episode was for you but we do yeah. have and i don't want to sound crass about this and, and yeah. I, I, you out there like my transition is basically if you want to listen to more of this conversation we're going to have this in our uncut version of it that we post on our patreon so yeah. go to patreon.com slash mission log you're going to get the unedited version of this because this conversation is going to continue after this edit but i want to give john the space and respect to be able to explain why this episode it, and, and pardon me for speaking out of turn but if this yeah. episode or why this episode affected you so much and yeah. i think i felt the same way you got to, well I'm, I'm anxious to hear what you have to say too i i would ask you for the soapbox you probably have it over there you slide it over this way um, how about a bourbon instead i'll take a bourbon <laughs> and that might be yeah. much more effective much more helpful i have always appreciated this episode and appreciated what it bites off to chew and to, to challenge us with. And 
this is the stage in the show where there are a lot of people who are going to hear me say this and they want to turn off the podcast or they want to argue with me or they want to send me an email or whatever. But I, I need to get this out, uh, which is something that I've said many, many times before, which is that since my late 20s, I, I'm a non-believer. I'm uh, for you know, lack of better terms, I'm an atheist. I do not have supernatural beliefs about uh, a God or an afterlife or whatever. And I say that not because I'm starting a, a debate with you, not because I feel like I'm right and you're wrong. The, the opposite could very well be true. I say that only because I need you and our audience to understand where I'm coming from, because that helps inform my perspective on this episode and many other episodes that, that we talk about. Different show with different hosts would have a different point of view, but but this is mine. This episode hit me all over again. I think we all have a natural fear of death. I, I know that I remember feeling that from a very young age, just trying to wrap my head around the idea of people who are gone and, and don't come back. I think that is a very normal part of maturing and understanding the world around you. And another part of that understanding of the world around you and grappling with that is that you have many family and traditional concepts of death and afterlife that are presented to you. And I grew up in a pretty conventional Christian Protestant upbringing, and not until much later in my adult life did I start to really grapple with that and ask myself what I believed and what I thought was true as opposed to what is just sort of a belief or a tradition. In that path of mine, realizing that I no longer had those beliefs, realizing that I, that I no longer fit in those traditions, one of the hardest things for me to let go of the, the thing that really, you know, I, I didn't wake up one morning and just go like, oh, I guess I don't believe in God anymore. It, it was not like we're talking about years of grappling with this, years of thinking through these ideas. And one of the hardest things for me to get past was this idea that death was the end, that that was the one piece of the mythology that I couldn't let go of because I remember hearing my grandparents and other people of their generation saying that when they're gone, they want to be reunited with their families in heaven. And when we're gone, they want us to be reunited with them. And it is a beautiful sentiment that got harder and harder for me to hear because as much as I would want it to be true, I simply couldn't walk around with a belief in my head that I didn't feel was true. I think everybody who listens to this show, pretty much everybody who listens to this show knows that I lost my father very recently, uh, just a few months ago. I was there to see his decline. I was there when he passed. And then I was there as we had a celebration of his life and family and friends came in from out of town and we got to say goodbye. And there was something about that experience that made me reflect quite a bit because there, there are a lot of people, again, in the tradition that I was raised in that say things that feel good, that say things like, your father is watching you. Your father is here with you. He sees you. He's in a better place, that kind of thing. And I don't begrudge them for saying that because I know that they want to feel good in the moment and they want me to feel good in the moment. 
But at the same time, I knew that I didn't share that belief. I just knew that I did not have that belief. That what I believed, what I felt in my heart, was that I had an amazing lifetime with somebody who I loved very much and who loved me very much. And then when he was gone, he was gone. And nobody can take away those memories and, and that love that we shared with each other. But what I did walk away with, though, is that instead of this nebulous supernatural feeling, instead of this myth of somebody being in another place, something like that, all of that felt far, at a certain point, far less important to me. And what I did feel was that on a fundamental physical level, this was somebody who was absolutely a part of me. And I walk around, with, with, even if it's something simple like a, a, a gesture or a thought or a mannerism, I go, oh, wait, that thing that I just did, that was my dad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the way that I reacted to that thing, that was my dad. And that to me has felt so much more profound, and so much more real, and so much more a part of my life than the myth or the faith tradition that there is some place out there that I can't see that it, it's heaven or whatever you want to call it where, where they exist. And I, I honestly, I've come to a point where I think I, I, I don't want that. What, what I want is the feeling that I have right now that I know in my logical brain that I won't see him again. But I also know on this level that nobody else can feel that he is absolutely a part of me. And I would not trade that for the world. At the memorial service that we had for him, um, I talked about how we shared these ideas back and forth. He would send me a video of Carl Sagan reading Pale Blue Dot. And he would send me a video about the, the birth of every atom in the universe, where they came from, you know. And I shared back with him, I think it was Neil deGrasse Tyson who, who took that idea and maybe he borrowed it from somebody else and said that, you know, the, the most poetic thing about life is that every atom that makes up your body, every molecule in your body was forged in the heart of a dying star and came together to be you for that temporary moment. And I couldn't think of anything more beautiful. And... I said to myself in the crowd there that now, because he sent that to me and because I got to process that, when I think of my dad, I get to look at the stars and know that that's where we came from and where we will go back. Help wanted. Someone please just take one for the team, pull some Neelix whiskers, and make him happy to be alive again. You know, John, it's it's not often that we say this about an episode, but this really goes kind of like, you know, the quote unquote uh, feel good episode of the summer. <laughs> so, you know, nothing really too difficult or too heavy, you know, to talk about, you know, no, certainly nothing not that's going to like, you know, challenge existentialism or, you know, humanity at its moral core. I'm kidding. <laughs> Save all your emails. This, yeah, this, this episode was profound. And by and, the way, for, for those who are just <laughs> hearing the edited version, we, we've had a nice... 
kind of a, a nice rest after the last segment. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we're we're coming into this segment a little fresher, but yes. <laughs> but it, w- it was profound. I don't want to make light of, of the previous right. section that's, you know, we're, 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 yeah. you know, John was very open with us and I thank you for that. I couldn't imagine how difficult that was because it's, we're talking to a broad audience here of many, yeah. many, many listeners and thank you for that. But this episode is one of those marks in time in Star Trek where it makes a very specific statement and it demands a very specific response. At the end of all of these episodes, as we do on Mission Log, we look at whether or not this episode holds up and withstand the tests of time. And were we able to find any morals or meanings or messages in the episode, therein in the episode? Mm Mm-hmm. I'm not going to assume that this was uh, an affecting episode to you, John, but I think that you may have gleaned one or two things from it. Yeah. Is that fair to say? Well, look, I mean, in terms of whether or not this episode holds up, I think somebody out there, you could make the argument that maybe this isn't a perfect episode of Star Trek, or maybe this one tends to get overlooked because there's not a lot of action. It's not even about one of our hero characters, really. You know, Neelix has kind of gone up and down in terms of the amount of focus that he's been given. But I can't help but love this episode, at least in part that in the span of a single 1990s TV episode, this took on perhaps the most profound question that we can possibly ask ourselves as human beings. It's not an episode that leaves you with an easy answer or a feel-good bow tied on it at the end, and it shouldn't. At the same time, it also doesn't end in like a maudlin or tragic way. It just is. This character has been through this terrible thing and now has to find a new way to live his life. And I think that's what's so good about it. It just allows us to inhabit Neelix's very relatable existential crisis and then see what we can learn from it. And just from a dramatic point of view, it is so nice to see Neelix pushed a little further and see Ethan Phillips play these tragic but very vulnerable layers. This was a bold script then, and it is now. And it touches me very deeply, and I want everyone to watch it. And you don't need to come away from it with answers necessarily, but I do think that we all need to ponder the questions. And how about you, Norman? Well, I mean, this is an incredibly powerful and and, and complex episode and worthy of being put on that top shelf of what I believe science fiction stories and especially Star Trek stories should be about, right? Capital should. Examining the human condition, right? And like you said, yes, even though Neelix isn't human, he's not our main character, right? Being able to explore our humanity through the lens of the alien analogy, I mean, that's that's stereotypical. That's standard Star Trek, yeah. right? You know, for all yeah. intents and purposes. Mm-hmm. Neelix, though, looking at his story and his belief system, this is how we give ourselves the, the distance and perspective to analyze and understand his plight, you know, and how it relates so closely to us, right? And in this episode, I mean, how many layers of Neelix's tragedy have applied to many of us over the course of our own life experience, right? And I think that that's where Star Trek is at its most successful is when we can see that even in the life experience and morality and belief system of an alien species, you know, where it directly relates to us. 
I think that's why this episode is so important, because it's the kind of story that affects you differently over time. Yes. Now, if I yes. saw this, like I didn't see this when it first came out. If I saw this in my 20s, it would have been like, okay, this is an interesting episode. It's very Star Trek, science fiction, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Right? But when you're older, when you have experienced certain changes and tragedies in your own life that challenge who you are and what you believe, when you watch an episode like this, it evokes the emotional response that we had, that we discussed, especially, you know, with, with your discussion point previously and Emotionally, it's a very affecting, challenging, and personal thing. You know, like it affects everyone differently when you watch this episode, especially fathers and sons. There are only a handful of episodes and and only one really in particular that I can bring up that is just as profound. And that's Deep Space Nine's The Visitor. Yeah. I think that that goes hand in hand with an episode like this. You know, they're, they're very good on the shelf together. I have to give... So much credit to Ethan Phillips. Yes. Ethan, quote unquote, Johnny Phillips in this episode. <laughs> it was incredible. It's, it's unfortunate that we don't see enough of this in Neelix, right? We saw this probably the last time this, 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 this quality of acting and the strength and this vulnerability and, and just his whole spectrum of nuance on, in his performance, you know, mm-hmm. on display in Jatrell, as you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And this kind of bookends to trail because we talked about how Elixia and his family were destroyed. You know, they were killed in that, you know, 11 years ago in the war. Mm-hmm. But I also want to give praise to Robert Beltran in this episode. Now, I know how people feel about him outside, mm-hmm. especially in his behavior and conventions. I understand that. But I'm talking about the relativity of his performance in this episode. I felt that this was Chakotay back in form. Yeah. Regardless of how you be- what you believe or how you feel about Jamake Hightower's influence on the Chakotay character, because, yeah, that's been talked about ad nauseum. We don't have to go there. What he did for Neelix in this episode, though, was tap into that what-if spirituality portion of the narrative. Where do yeah. I go from here? Neelix sought him out. It's not that Chakotay pushed his belief system on Neelix. And in doing so, he gave Neelix the opportunity to understand what happened or try to interpret the direction he needs to to move forward. And I thought that Beltran really played the sensitivity of Chakotay being that quote-unquote gentleman that he talked himself about or described himself before earlier, you know, with the Kazon child in that same manner. And it's nice to see him return to form in that way because we don't get a lot of that out of Chakotay anymore. And I think that's a shame. Yeah. So I think that it's not a novel idea of what we saw in this episode. We've seen this in, you know, probably ad nauseum in series like Highlander, for example, you know, where Mm -hmm. immortals look at their own mortality uh, in a race of beings that live forever. But what does it mean? How do the choices affect your life and the life of the people around you? Yeah. And I think that was handled very responsibly in this episode. Agreed. Agreed. So let's talk about morals, meanings, messages. <laughs> oh, you found one? <laughs> I mean, I thought you so aptly put it that this is an episode that you will be affected by in different ways, depending on when you watch it and through what perspective, through what eyes you watch it. And I think we can all appreciate, uh, as I did the first time I saw it, that here's Star Trek being deep. Here's Star Trek taking on the fundamental existential question where do we go when we die what if that doesn't exist who are we then if that isn't promised to us 
and then seeing it later in life after going through personal experiences, it, it becomes something else again. It, it, it rattles all that up again, but in a much more personal kind of way. And um, you really affected me at the, it just playing it back in my head, hearing you read the words about the very end of the episode where Neelix is talked down from his rash decision in the transporter room to then getting him back in front of Naomi and kind of finding a sense of love and family and purpose there. I, I think that's such a touching scene. It's so nice. And I think that speaks very greatly to the, 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 the heart, the central message of this episode, uh, because we get a taste of it at the end. But I kept thinking, you know, there's a scene or two or maybe several scenes that come after that, that that we don't get to see as the audience. Those are the ones we get to fill in in our heads. And those are the scenes that get us from the Neelix at the end of this episode to the Neelix at the beginning of the next one or the one that comes after that or even a couple of years after that. And those are the scenes, those are the moments that I want everyone to think about because – Neelix was walking around with this idea that informed his sense of who he was and what his place in the universe was and where he would go at the end of his life. And if you had to consider for a moment that your belief in your spirit or your soul or an afterlife, whatever it is, wasn't true, what would that do to you? If you had to entertain that even for a second and then maybe on the next day, two seconds, and then a few more, and then so many more that you're really grappling with the idea that there isn't something else at the end of your life. Then where does that get you next week or the next week after that or a couple of years after that in all of those missing scenes that we don't get to see here with Neelix? So who do you become? And, and how do you spend your time? And how do you prioritize what's important? And maybe it's not that much different than it is right now. But it's likely that you take just a second longer to appreciate the preciousness of the life that you've got, the only one that is promised to you right now. So I went through that journey. And it was incredibly hard. But then I realized that it was also a gift. One of my favorite quotations I have ever heard anywhere was from an interview with one of the scientists who mapped the human genome. And the interviewer asked him, what is the meaning of life after accomplishing this incredible task? And he said, life has no meaning. Lives have meaning. And that struck me as a core part of my philosophy ever since I read it. And I picture Neelix wrestling this over in his head, realizing that he has so much to live for, that meaning and purpose and love all come from the people in your life, the bonds that you create and the good works that you do with them. And there isn't an answer out there that gives it all meaning. It's in here that he now gets the opportunity to make it his own. This is a new lease on life, and I hope he embraces it, as should we all. Thank you, John. That was beautifully said. Um, it reminds me of the quote from Gladiators, all men die, not all men truly live. <laughs> yeah. And I don't want to sound yeah. you, know, you know quippish about that. but no, um, I love that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with us. And, 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 and for me, 
You know, like, uh, I want to bring up this scene when Seven is scanning Neelix in the mess hall, and she says that he's alive, quote-unquote. Neelix doesn't agree with her definition of, quote-unquote, life, and says, I don't know, but something is missing. I don't feel like Neelix anymore. Maybe Neelix is gone. Maybe he died, and I'm all that's left. And when Neelix realized that his belief system was taken away from him, he was faced with, quote, Unquote, what else is there when the one thing that keeps me going, which is hope, is taken away? I, like many of us out there, have stood at these crossroads, and I sometimes still do. And I believe that it's because, aside from the biological, there is no one definition of life as a concept because, again, and this is just my opinion, life just is. The definitions that we have placed on life may not even be our own because many of us have been raised within the confines of belief systems that categorized life for us, whether it be religious or politics or societal norms. And when we finally realize that these belief systems no longer define who we are, what then? Was everything that we experienced in our lives tailored to the specifications and outcomes within the parameters of those belief systems were those then all lies? Are those beliefs all wastes of our existence? No, absolutely not. They are simply a part of the ongoing process of who we are and how we are constantly redefining what we are. And again, in my opinion, I don't think we'll ever truly reach that moment of enlightenment when we figure it all out. Perhaps that's why immortality is so alluring as a concept. To live long enough to see if we actually do figure it all out. But there's no guarantee that any of this will make sense if you live to be 80 or 8,000. <laughs> Carl Sagan said, quote, The cosmos is within us. We are made of star stuff. We are a way for the universe to know itself. End quote. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sorry, man. That's okay. I find great comfort in this because when I think about the vastness of the universe, when I stare up into the infinity of space, I know that my life, perhaps all life, will take some time, more than we can comprehend, to learn that which we need to know in order for the vastness of the universe to understand itself. Isn't this one of the main reasons we fell in love with this aspect of science fiction in the first place? To help us explain the unexplainable? As I am one to do, I'd like to end this with this particular motivational quote from the movie Rocky Balboa. Rocky is advising his son how to find the strength to fight. In the parlance of the way Rocky sees the world from his life experience, and I quote, The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place. And I don't care how tough you are. It will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently. If you let it, you, me, nobody is going to hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. End Thank quote. you for uh, giving us some motivation at the end there. I needed that. <laughs> uh, 
Thank you, and thank you, everybody, for listening today. We'd like to remind everybody that the Suicide Prevention Lifeline uh, can be reached by dialing 988 from any phone. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com, and for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Waking Moments. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, Tom Kozak, Julie Miller, Mike Richards, Mike Shadable, Paul Shadwell, and David Takechi. I don't want to confuse causation and correlation, but none of Star Trek's proto-matter experts have really benefited from being proto-matter experts. And transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.